I get an email every day with a summary of the top news stories in pediatrics and updates about kids' health. It covers the latest research studies, and it also has mainstream news stories that relate to trends that pediatricians should know about. I do read this update, but most of the new research in it doesn't really apply to my daily dealings with patients. The stories that do pertain to my patients are mostly what one of my partners calls duh stories. I didn't need research to explain these things to me. They're kind of like obvious. Here are some examples. Here's a title. Medication shortages for ADHD are affecting high school and college students at the start of the school year. Uh, Yeah, duh. I know. I live this every day, trying to find a pharmacy that has my patient's ADHD medication or me having to change their prescription to something the pharmacy does have. Fortunately, this problem seems to have gotten better recently. Here's another duh title. Cannabis use rising among young adults post-legalization, study finds. Again, duh. THC is easier to get than alcohol. Of course, more people are using it. And here's another one. Report shows injuries related to use of e-bikes, e-scooters jumped in 2019 to 2022. That was the title of the article. Like, yeah, I know. Kids really only started using these during these years. And I feel like I see this headline every two months anyway. Here's another one. Excessive TV watching in childhood tied to higher risk of obesity in adults, research suggests. Well, yeah, I mean, we all know this. All right, here's one more. I just saw this in pediatrics news. Children may be more careful around guns after seeing one minute gun safety video, study suggests. The summary on this article said, researchers found that kids who had watched a one minute gun safety video were more likely to make a safe choice when they came upon an unlocked gun than children who had not been taught about gun safety. This headline is, it's relatively helpful to me. So literally, I know if you spend one minute showing your kid where the trigger is on a gun and teach them not to touch a gun, they're more careful. This one was just, it's a good reminder that it takes almost no time to teach kids things about dangerous stuff I wonder if there was a similar study about touching hot stoves and preventing burns. Here's another one I liked from the pediatric news. Here's the title. Respiratory diseases incidence not different in twin siblings when the first was born vaginally and the second was born via cesarean delivery. Results show. So this study means if a twin gets a cold virus and one twin was born vaginally and the other twin was born by C-section, they're just as likely to get colds as each other and as other twins. This is literally not something I ever needed to know. I don't know why it's in the news. But here's one that was one of my recent favorites. This title killed me. Marching band injuries strike a wrong note in emergency departments. That was the title. I think the authors were pretty funny. I have to read some of this article to you. Here's what it said. Researchers reviewed 20,335 marching band injuries from 2012 to 2021. 85% of injuries occurred in those 14 to 18 years of age. I mean, really, like what other kids are in marching band? The article went on. 70% of injuries were in females with most injuries in the ankles and knees. The lead researcher shared this wisdom he gleaned from the study. He said, Like their instruments, band members must be in tune with their bodies. (laughs) He also said, 
Coaches and parents should be educated on the risk of injury and mild traumatic brain injury to help keep their band members marching to the beat of the drum. I always ask about which sports my patients are playing, and I talk a little bit about sports safety, but I had never thought to counsel teen girls about the risks of marching band to their lower limbs. This is how I stay up to date on trends and changes in the practice of medicine. I read this daily doctor bulletin. I also go to conferences and I have residents in clinic that teach me a lot about new updates and treatment changes. And on today's episode, I'm going to share the biggest stories from 2023 that I think parents should know about and how they've changed my practice this year. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. Back in episode 20, I talked about treating molluscum contagiosum. Those are those skin-colored bumps that a lot of kids get. They're not bad, they're just annoying. Mostly to parents, kids don't really even care about them at all. In episode 20, I talked about all of the -the over-the-counter products that parents can try to use to get rid of these molluscum. And the products I mentioned are all ones that other pediatricians say they've used on their own children. That episode came out June 13th of this year. And on August 18th, a news story came out that says the FDA sent a letter to companies, including Walmart, Amazon, and several manufacturers who make products that they claim treat molluscum. The FDA said there aren't any over-the-counter approved treatments and they all need to be discontinued and not sold. Interestingly, about a month before the FDA sent this letter, they approved the first treatment for molluscum called cantharidin. Dermatologists refer to this as Beetlejuice, and you may have heard of it. The FDA just approved it, even though dermatologists have been using it for years. The thing about all of this, though, is that no treatment for molluscum works that well. Even the newly approved one resolved kids' bumps in only half the kids who were treated, and it took almost 12 weeks to work. I see a lot of kids with molluscum. And this update applies to mine and to your kids because if you know a couple of kids, chances are most of them will have these bumps at some point. So here's what I took away from this news story. The truth is that molluscum goes away on their own. Dermatologists have a lot of treatment options, including cryotherapy, which is like freezing, cutting them off, or using this beetle juice. But all of these are pretty uncomfortable and they can leave scars. So my takeaway is that going forward, I'm going to feel even more confident advising parents to ignore molluscum and let them take their own time to fall off. The cost, the time, and the discomfort of any treatment method is really not worth it. Unless a kid has tons of these bumps or the bumps are on the kid's face or neck, in that case, you should see a dermatologist. But otherwise, just ignore them and don't spend money on any over-the-counter products that claim they treat molluscum. The next topic that I've put a lot of thought into given research from this year is about giving antibiotics. There were three stories that made me think differently about prescribing antibiotics. The first was titled, Exposure to Antibiotics Before Age 2 May Increase Risk of Developing Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease, research suggests. This was a decent study done in Norway 
that showed that children who were exposed to antibiotics, even during pregnancy, are 1.4 times more likely to develop inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Whether this is true or not, given all the emerging information about the importance of the microbiome, that's the healthy bacteria that live on our body, this study just makes sense. We do not know the extent of the effects that antibiotics have on a young developing child's body. Obviously, we need to use antibiotics in some situations, but there's also a lot of new evidence that things like ear infections can heal on their own. And I say this because another study came out this year that antibiotics appear to provide minimal benefit for acute sinus infections. Antibiotics are way overprescribed for sinus infections in kids. First, you've heard me say this before probably, kids don't even have sinuses until they're like four years old. And even then, their sinus spaces are tiny. This study looked at 510 kids aged two to 11, and their symptoms weren't particularly better when they took Augmentin, the antibiotic. And these kids had a lot more diarrhea. My takeaway here is that in many cases, it's okay for you to wait a day or two and hold off on starting antibiotics for a kid who you suspect has a sinus infection. Treatments like irrigating the nose with saline should definitely be tried in those kids who are age two to 11 before you try starting antibiotics. In teenagers, I'm more likely to recommend antibiotics, but that's a whole other story. I talked about preventing colds and flus with supplements and other treatments back in episode 28. And that's an episode you definitely want to go back and listen to. The goal is to not get sick and not get an ear infection or a sinus infection. I didn't talk about this, but I want to mention it here. The best prevention I've seen for not getting a bacterial infection like an ear infection or pneumonia is getting the Hib and pneumococcus vaccines. My patients who haven't gotten those vaccines, those are the kids in which I've seen the worst ear infections. And this is related to the third news story I saw this year about avoiding antibiotics. The title in this story was, Antibiotic Prescriptions in First Year of Life May Be Tied to Less Vigorous Immune Response to Routine Child Vaccinations. According to a study in the well-respected journal Pediatrics, Investigators found that the more antibiotic prescriptions a child received in the first year of life, the lower the vaccine antibody levels were at age 12 to 15 months. Each prescription was linked to a 6 to 11% dip in their antibody levels, depending on the vaccine. There's some evidence, and I haven't looked at the data recently, that giving an anti-fever medication at the same time as vaccines can also reduce a kid's ability to make immunity to the vaccine. But that's interesting now to see that antibiotic use may also play a role. So none of this is cut and dried, but given the news that came out this year, certainly there is a trend towards seeing that we need to be thoughtful about when we give kids antibiotics. Before I move on to a completely different topic, I want to add on to this news story because this is something that has always bugged me. Here's the headline. CVS will pull common cold medications in which oral phenylephrine is the only active ingredient. I didn't follow this whole story because you know, I'm, like, I'm busy, but I hate phenylephrine. It is a useless medication. Ever since pseudoephedrine, which was the ingredient in Sudafed, was put behind the pharmacy counter because people were using it to make crystal meth, this has become a real issue, pseudoephedrine doesn't require a prescription. 
but you have to ask the pharmacist for it and sign your address in order to get it. So stores that didn't have a pharmacy like 7-Eleven or convenience stores, they couldn't sell the stuff. So the people who create Sudafed created a new product and it's called Sudafed PE. And it contains that garbage, waste of money, phenylephrine. As far as I can tell, the FDA hasn't made any statements about phenylephrine. And it seems like CVS maybe took it upon themselves to pull any over-the-counter medications that have phenylephrine from their shelves. Good on them. Here's my lesson. Get the good stuff. Know the difference between pseudoephedrine and phenylephrine. Anyway, the FDA did come out and say phenylephrine is not effective as a nasal decongestant. It can raise your blood pressure if you take a high dose though. Now you know which over-the-counter medications are useless. Next, I'll talk about useless drinks like toddler milk, just another ploy by manufacturers to convince you you need something you don't. And I'm gonna get into peanut allergy treatments, the future of eczema treatment, and asthma treatment. It's not all about albuterol anymore. And that's what's coming up next. I just talked about food allergies recently in episodes 41 and 42. And there are huge changes this year in treating food allergies, which is so exciting. So this headline caught my attention. Peanut allergen powder treatment appears effective in children under four years with peanut allergies, trial indicates. Why do the headlines always end with something like study says or trial indicates? I would believe the truth of the article, even if they don't say that. Anyway, this study gave an increasing dose of a specific allergen powder with peanuts in it, and 74% of the kids who took it could tolerate 600 milligrams of peanut protein after the treatment compared to a comparison group that weren't treated. And in that group, only 6% of the kids could tolerate that same amount of peanut. My takeaway here, keep an eye on food allergy treatments and see an allergy specialist every six to 12 months because there are so many new treatment trials and so much is changing in this area. While I'm on the subject of allergy and immunology, I've had a few patients who have started this drug called Dupilumab. It's an injection for their eczema. And I have never seen such impressive results. This is an immune modulating drug, and we are seeing big changes in eczema treatment for cases that were really hard to treat. Here's the headline I read this year Dupilumab treatment tied to significant sustained clinical improvements within two weeks of use in almost all children with severe atopic dermatitis, study indicates. We've had topical immune modulator medications. Those are creams that you put on the skin. And we probably don't use those as much as we should because when they first came out, they had a black box warning that they might increase the risk of cancer, which has shown not to be true. But these topical immune modulators work just as well on eczema as topical steroids. They just really haven't been used that much. Some kids have the worst, the most difficult to treat eczema and treatments like dupilumab are going to be practice changing. There are several similar medications in development that don't require injections. So here's an area you really wanna keep an eye on. The other big change in the area of allergy medicine is regarding the use of albuterol for asthma. Most people have heard of albuterol. That's the inhaler people use when they're having an asthma attack. 
There is way too much to talk about here. But what you really need to know is that there's a big shift in the philosophy of treatment. And the newest recommendations for asthma are based on a lot of solid information. And we're moving away from using albuterol, which is a rescue inhaler. And we're finding it's safer and more effective to be using an inhaled steroid, something like Flovent or Qvar. Those are some of the brand names you may have heard of. Our asthma treatment plans have changed a lot this year. So if your child has not seen a doctor for their asthma plan in the last six months, you need to schedule an appointment to review their treatment plan. It's probably out of date. Here are a couple of other big updates. It's very out of fashion to treat babies who have reflux with an antacid. Too much information has come up about using something like Zantac or Prilosec in a baby because it poses more dangers than benefits. Here's the headline I read. Pediatric patients who receive treatment with acid suppressants may have an increased risk for asthma, eczema, and allergic rhinitis, research suggests. I swear, I'm not making these headlines up. They all end with research suggests. This review article looked at five different studies and more than a million patients. It was in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. Again, there may be some effect on the microbiome that we're not aware of. But like my advice on molluscum, you need to ignore your baby's reflux as much as you can, as long as they're gaining weight. They are going to grow out of it. It's not going to hurt anything but your ears and your emotional core as you have to listen to them fuss and cry and be miserable. And that brings me to toddler formula. Here's my update. Please just give your toddler real food and like regular milk. They do not need toddler formula. Here's my proof from this headline. AAP warns against powdered drink mixes for older infants, children up to age three. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, they say powdered drink mixes that are widely promoted as toddler milks for older babies and children up to age three are unregulated, unnecessary, and nutritionally incomplete. These drinks, which are touted to parents on TikTok and in television ads and other sites, they often contain added sugar and salt. The manufacturers make unproven claims that the drinks boost kids' brain or immune functions. And according to the AAP Committee on Nutrition member, George Fuchs, he says, no toddler milk. Same goes for energy drinks. The AAP is so against these drinks. Here's the headline. Pediatricians, parents calling for U.S. to treat new high-caffeine energy drinks like alcohol and cigarettes ban their sale to minors. I talked about these in episode 37 when I talked about sports supplements. There are a few supplements and healthy drink options. In fact, I have a few recipes and alternatives in episode 33 about sports nutrition. So check out episode 33 and 37 if you're interested. The problem with energy drinks is that a single serving can contain as much caffeine as six caffeinated colas. According to this news story, while caffeine content in energy drinks has climbed over the years, some countries and retailers have banned the products, while a few require proof of age for purchase. But in the US and UK, no national regulations ban the sale of high caffeine energy drinks. Well, maybe we'll see this happen in 2024. On the subject of caffeine, which you know we pediatricians call poor man's Ritalin, a story related to that about ADHD medications is important to mention. There actually were so many news stories about ADHD that I could make a new episode about it, and maybe there will be one in 2024. Make sure to follow the show and you'll find out. 
Here's the very misleading headline that caught my attention. Statistically significant association between ADHD medications, cardiovascular risk. Okay, this study actually showed there is no statistically significant association between ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and cardiovascular disease. According to a review of 19 studies, investigators found there's no association between ADHD medications and cardiovascular disease among children and adolescents. There has been a rumor for decades that a kid should get an EKG before they start on one of these medications, and this is not true. It's not needed. Just like there were tons of news stories about ADHD, there were just as many about social media and video games. Again, this is enough for its own episode. I covered the most important updates on this in episode 23 when I talked about managing screen time. In that episode, I talked with the author of the AAP's new guidelines. But here's one story we missed. So my own son, he got his driver's license this year. So these two headlines caught my attention. The first is, new video game technology may help predict what type of driver a teen will be, researchers say. According to this story, a new video game technology that exposes drivers to the most common serious crash scenarios and it sees how they react can help predict what type of driver a child will be. And it could also highlight potential problems. The technology is called Ready Assess by Diagnostic Driving Incorporated. It's a fully immersive 15-minute self-guided simulated drive that measures a person's ability to drive safely and avoid crashes. And it measures more than 100 skills, including vehicle control, lane position, proximity to other vehicles, ability to negotiate curves, as well as responses to unexpected hazards. I learned about this too late. And unfortunately, I had to be the real life full immersive right seat witness to my son's vehicle control and extreme close proximity to other vehicles. I've got one more story that caught my attention this year. And this one is about head lice. Apparently, a discovery this year confirmed that lice have annoyed us since the dawn of time and treatment hasn't changed. A hair comb made from a tusk was found back in 2016, but just this year in 2023, researchers discovered the comb has the earliest known sentence ever written in the Canaanite language. And I kid you not, the sentence written on this comb says, may this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. So there's nothing new here. It's just confirmation that sometimes the medicine of the ancients was right on target. We still just pick and comb out lice in kids' hair. So here's what we've learned this year. One, leave molluscum alone. And if it's on the face or there are hundreds of lesions, see a dermatologist and do not waste your money on products that claim to treat molluscum. Number two, be sure your child really needs antibiotics before you use them. Most of their illnesses, including sinus inflammation and coughs, are from viruses and antibiotics won't work, but also might have some unwanted effects on your kid's health. Number three, phenylephrine is worthless. Number four, if your child has food allergies or asthma, be sure to see a doctor regularly because treatments are changing so fast. Number five, reflux medications for babies might have some unexpected risks, so it's out of fashion to use them. Number six, I'm gonna make fun of you if you buy toddler formula. Listen to episode one about multivitamins 
or episodes 12 and 13 about picky eaters if you want to know what to do instead of toddler formula. Number seven, no energy drinks for kids. Number eight, video games might have some benefits. Listen to episode 23 for more about screen time and video games. And finally, number nine, lice is never going away. And just like our ancestors 3,700 years ago, we are still picking lice eggs out of our kids' hair because our modern medications for lice still really aren't that good. And the lesson here is that maybe we should look to the past for inspiration on treating modern ailments. That's it for this season of The Pediatrician Next Door. I'll be back in January with a brand new season. And that gives you plenty of time to catch up on any episodes you missed. If you've appreciated my knowledge this year, the ultimate holiday gift you can give me is to share this show with your friends or leave a rating and review. And let me know what you want to hear about next season. Thanks for listening. For more from The Pediatrician Next Door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.